0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavoured Snapple
1: near you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...
0: Hello, I'm Farah and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoy this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode.
2: (laughs)
3: The first time I ever stood up in, in, in public and did comedy was at the Oxford University Psychological Society <laughs> Christmas Party. <laughs> that was the geek he'd got. It, it seemed a total disaster because we did our half-hour in absolute silence, but at the end, someone came up, shook our hands warmly and said, that was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Psychology. Yeah. <laughs> There's certain moments in humour which define how humour should be played. For instance, the comfy chair, someone says put her in the comfy chair, it's put her in, and there's a terrific sting. <laughs> so you've got to build it up. The comfy chair. <laughs> You know, what's happening at the moment is not going to be the end of this country. I feel very strongly it's quite the opposite. But I think in order to get rid of the mess, people have got to go, you've got to go through the mess. And we are, you know, in deep shit at the moment.
2: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. With me is one of Britain's definitely best loved comic actors, writers and travellers – Sir Michael Palin is as well known now for his travelogues and his books, starting with Around the World in 80 Days, and most recently his trip to North Korea, as he is for his work as a comedy actor and a writer, indeed a dramatic actor, in things such as Monty Python, many comedy shows and films, including The Life of Brian... Brazil, A Private Function, The Death of Stalin, and a recent ITV adaptation of Vanity Fair. Thank you so much um, for coming in, Michael. Take me back to your childhood, born in 1943 in Sheffield, and your father was an engineer. What kind yes. of home was it?
3: Um, well, life was fairly quiet. My father uh, didn't have a great deal of money, though he, he, he probably feels he should have done because he was Cambridge-educated but fell foul of the Great Depression. Uh, he was an engineer, couldn't find work in the south, ended up in Hull and then Leeds and then in Sheffield in a very big rented house on the western side of Sheffield. that was, was always cold, I remember that. It's always, <laughs> he was not good at sort of heating the place. So there was himself, my mother, and my sister, who was nine years older than me, um, who, uh, yeah, I can remember sort of growing up with very early on, but there was quite a distance between us and she was soon off doing her own thing. But that was that was the little Palin family. And what were you like as a boy? Well, I was quite, uh, I was quite shy in some ways. I loved reading. I, I had a very vivid imagination. I loved sort of living in my own sort of little world, but always had good friends around. Sometimes I I found the friends took over my life and I wanted just to be on my own doing my things. How did they take over? Well, they would want to see me more often than I wanted to see them sometimes. You know, it's just one of those things. I would like very often just to go off on my bike um, and make my own little journey. I used to go for bike rides, which I, I was a great fan of railways and trains. So I would turn the bike, the bike journey into a railway journey. That's interesting. So there'd be a certain places by the side of the road where I would stop, and that would be Leeds Station, and then the Newcastle Station ah. would be a letterbox further up the hill. So I was imagining it as I went on and waiting for people to get on board and all that. So you could say it's sad, but I think it was just exploring kind of a certain freedom. Yeah,
2: well, there's two things. One is the traveller in you seeing a bigger world and creating a bigger world in your own environment. But also when you talked about the fantasy world you like to escape to, was that particular books or films or things?
3: Well, uh, I read all the Enid Blyton books to start with, as I think most people of my generation would have done. Then I got very keen on, on Biggles books because Biggles was always set somewhere uh, exotic like the Gobi Desert or the Himalaya or somewhere like that and I just remember enjoying geography most of all at school Really, reading old, finding old copies of the National Geographic magazine and being absolutely fascinated by far off mountain ranges and uh, and fast flowing rivers and How amazing and
2: all in a way it makes me surprised you didn't go straight into the travelling, but actually did the acting first. And at school you were acting. Did you do improvisations in the milk room?
3: Yes, <laughs> I did. It's funny because I was sort of shy about doing formal acting and I didn't volunteer for many of the school plays. May have been my father's uh, influence there because he was very wary of my becoming an actor. My sister had tried to become an actor. It hadn't worked out. My father wanted his children to earn some money, you know, not go down the decadent path of uh, of showbiz. But I I, I must have had a talent for entertaining people and I could tell stories quite well. And, yes, there used to be... um, uh, I remember 1953, it was the year of the coronation. I did little sort of ten-minute improvisations about the coronation.
2: What kind of improvisation?
3: Well, it's also a bit embarrassing now, but it was sort of, you know, it was the Duke of Edinburgh being caught short um, in the middle of the coronation ceremony, which all the boys loved, of course, anything like that. And you put on um, the little things like that, and I would do a sort of commentary of what was going on uh, at the coronation, and those who wanted to come came, and we had quite a little loyal gathering. Uh, yes, it was in in the milk room, so I can remember doing that. Can
2: you even remember sort of some of the things you said?
3: I know you're older now, but... No, I I can't, actually. I wish I could. I can remember about the Duke of Edinburgh and and toilet rolls. Now, that's all I can tell you. (laughs) Uh, You can get the gist of it, I'm afraid. Yeah, absolutely. Having to be rushed to him halfway through the ceremony. Um, And
2: so you had a little following, then, of people who came to see your improvisations and your comedy.
3: Yes, yes. I I was was seen as somebody who could make people laugh.
2: It just makes you wonder, do you think, you know, you're born a comedian in a way, or do you think they're made? Because you had this innate instinct Mm. in you.
3: I do, really don't know. I think it's a way of looking at the world. I've always have been an observer rather than... I've enjoyed observing the world rather than being observed myself. myself. Some, someone wrote once in an interview, which I thought was absolutely spot on, that I don't like being scrutinised. Very good word. You it came to the wrong place. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I've, my, no, I mean, I, I love talking to people and I love sharing my experiences. Yeah. But there are certain things where I can't give an answer, so I feel I don't want to be cross-questioned and come up with something that is glib and all that. But I do think that a way of looking at the world through humour and seeing sort of things that make you laugh rather than cry, it must be there fairly early on.
1: Yes.
3: I don't know whether it's genetic or anything like that, but I can remember... Uh, seeing uh, all, um, all the various sort of pressures at school and all that, I generally tended to solve them by finding a friend and laughing about them than by going home and saying, I can't stand this any longer. And that's still been fairly good stead. Interesting.
2: I want to ask a bit more about your father. Um, He had a serious stammer and I should say here I'm involved in the charity Action for Stammering Children, of which you're the patron. And like so many other parents, my child, my family, had life transforming therapy at the Michael Palin Centre in London to which you gave your name and your support. Can you tell me what effect your father's stammer had on you and why it's so important to you to campaign around the issue?
3: Well, I felt at the time em- embarrassment about my father's stammer, and I knew this was wrong. When friends would come home from school who didn't know him and experience his stammer for the first time, they'd sort of, you know, be a little embarrassed, I'd be a little awkward. And I always felt, well, rather defensive of my father because I realised uh, that I, well, simple as that, I didn't want him to stammer. Yes. I'd rather have a father who didn't stammer. And I think, looking back, that it influenced him a great deal. I think it made him slightly, well, more cantankerous than normal, easier to fly off the handle, which he did every now and then. I I think he was a very funny man who probably found it very difficult to tell jokes um, because if you don't have an absolute sort of fluency, uh, you can't really start a joke knowing you'll get to the end of it. Little things like that. I think probably in his work he went for interviews. Was not able to perhaps convince people he could talk fluently. Therefore, was um, um, turned down for work. I'm not. I don't know of this, but I'm sure it was sort of there. Uh, and yet, it was never discussed. We never. I never asked him. Why do you stammer? How do you feel about stammering? I never did all this. So, my later work for the Stammering Centre and all that was a way of trying to make it up to him and make some sense of all the things I felt were most unjust about the way stammerers were looked at, that they uh, people who had very little to say. That's why they spoke so slowly, which is just completely the opposite to the yeah. truth, yeah. Um, that they were not intelligent people, which is completely opposite to the truth. So, you know, my involvement later uh, in with the stammering centre is an, an, and has been a tremendously rewarding experience. And yet, at moments, I just think if my father had been around to have that sort of treatment, how different life might have been for him and for me and for my mother, um, yes. who he, he went sort of... He, he got very cross every now and then. I used to be... I used to feel I'm very uncomfortable about their arguments.
2: As you say, it has an effect on the whole family. Yes. Um, which is why the support of Action for Stammering Children and the treatment at that centre treats the whole family I, I found it transformative and I have to express my gratitude to you and the mm. charity for, for the, the support that you've given my family it makes me also wonder there's that one film A Fish Called Wonder, in which you played a character with a stammer mm. it was made in the 80s and in a way it does seem a very long time ago and it was it sort of treated a bit for laughs the mm. character was tormented by the Kevin Kine character it's very difficult to watch now in many ways and I wonder how you feel looking back at that film and the treatment of it
3: well, I, thought, I still find it very funny, I mean, because I think Cleese managed to get together a wonderful gallery of characters and there's lots of humour in it, including the fact that there is somebody who has the only bit of information everybody wants and he has a stammer. Have you got a stutter? I uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, OK, uh, Don't worry, don't worry. Do you know where they've gone? Uh, yeah. Fine, fine. Yeah. Where? The ca- The car? Hotel. The hotel? Which hotel? Mm. The car. The car? The car. The car. Ca- the- the- <tinha> go on. Go on. Ins, s- sing it. Sing. The car. The car. The car. The, the car. Oh, come on! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When I talk now about stammering and all that, and I, I go, I was recently down at the stammering centre talking to some teenagers who'd been there on a two-week course um it 's a little awkward to um, uh to be able to sort of explain the film and the work i 'm doing at the stammering centre, but I think they I think they understood it. I think that they could see that there were two different things there's one way is a way of finding out why people stammer the other is is that i took the role because i don't feel that stammerers should not be you know should be sort of put in a corner and not even and, and totally ignored even if it's in a comedy film ken Pyle was a character i was playing He's not a nice man, you know, he's not a saint at all. He's a very unpleasant character, very bad at killing. Um, and it, but in the end, he's the least bad of all the yes. people there. And he yes. gets his revenge by running over uh, no, no, Kevin, Kevin Klein. Klein, sorry, yes, in a In a, steamer. <laughs> in true. a roller, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it is, no, there, there are awkwardnesses there, but that's part of the reason I became so interested in trying to help the, uh, the stammering uh, cause.
2: Let's talk about the act of uh, writing. Uh, You've been keeping a diary since childhood on and off, and you had some schoolboy diaries from your days in Sheffield, which I've seen you kind of read from on on your website. What made you keep them, and what made you take up a diary again later when you were older?
3: Um, Well, the obvious thing is I enjoyed writing from what I can remember from... Whenever I first learnt to write, I I liked to keep notebooks. I would would create little books about my favourite footballers. I liked lists because I was a train spotter. So writing things down was something I enjoyed. I wonder actually, and I've not really thought of this before, whether the act of writing and writing diaries was sort of somehow to define my own identity away from my parents, away from school and all that sort of thing this is me, this is what I really am. I, I, I'm not sure it was as as clear as that, but I think that's certainly an aspect of of diary-keeping. Um, and I still do keep a diary.
2: Yes. Well, what's really interesting, and you give advice on your website about diary-keeping, is to not be afraid to just write down what you did that day. Because if nothing else, it's an incredible aid memoir when you come to be looking back on a career like yours. But I was also fascinated that when you began keeping a proper diary again it was in 1969 when you were 26 uh, nearly 26 you just had a baby with your wife it didn't seem an obvious time to have the time to write a diary and I'm interested that you did start again then
3: ah well you've missed the key thing which is I gave up smoking in ah. April 1969 I <laughs> we had our little son Tom um and uh just having him on my knee and then having to get the cigarette out of my mouth, give him a cuddle. I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> They're incompatible, you know, fatherhood and smoking. So I gave up smoking. And that had been very much a part of my life for, um, you know, seven or eight years, ten years, possibly. Um, and it was such an act of will that I – a successful act of will, actually, because I gave up virtually Just like, like that. that. Um and uh, it made me feel, hey, I've got this new enabled willpower. What, what can I use it for? So I thought, well, diaries, which, as, as you say, I'd kept at school. Maybe now's the time to start keeping a diary. And I'm mean, quite coincidentally and extraordinarily, it was about two weeks before we had our first Monty Python meeting. So something was something was going on there in my, my head at the time. Not bad. And then they all were ready
2: to be published years later. Can we talk a bit about how you got into acting then? Because there is a dramatic range in you, and I see it in your work. You do comedy, you do dark drama, but you're acting at prep school. Um, you went to Shrewsbury, didn't you?
3: Well, Shrewsbury. my prep school was in, in, in Sheffield. Right. And um, then I went on to Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, uh, senior Shrewsbury. Um, when I was 13.
2: And at prep school, you did Martha Cratchit in A Christmas Carol. Mm. That was it. And nothing at senior school. Did you want to be an actor?
3: I wanted to act... Um, being an actor was obviously going to produce a great clash with my father yeah. if I said this is what I want to be I want to learn how to act I want to go to acting school and all that sort of thing so I really did it surreptitiously and I did act at, uh, at Showsby at my public school but only in things that he probably wouldn't have seen um, and he did one. Actually, one play uh, he did come along to see, and it's a rather complicated Bernard Shaw play called *The Apple Cart*, and I was playing one of the two secretaries at the beginning who talk a lot, but it's 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 not it's not easy to follow. And he f- he fell asleep after a minute, and so he didn't realise quite how large a part it was by the end of the play. So there was that feeling. I wanted. I loved acting. I loved playing other people. It was part of my imagination. I loved being someone else you know it's like just going for a walk or something I had to dramatise where I was and the buildings around all that sort of thing and I kind of was very much aware of keeping a narrative of my life you know thinking about myself and why am I doing this and where am I going you know very and there, there wasn't a moment wasted. And I think that's what diary keeping is all about. It's just really saying, you know, every moment is part of a story, part of a narrative that is you. So if you can write it down, or write as much as you can down, then you'll keep that narrative in your, in your head.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> so tell me when you first did proper acting, because you sort of did, is it fair to call it amateur dramatics in Sheffield?
3: Yes. Yes, that was very important to me. I, I, I had a gap year in Sheffield. <laughs> now people go off to Bhutan and Bali and I went about six miles down the road to the the uh, the steelworks where my father worked, and I worked in the advertising department, met somebody there who was a keen amateur actor and a lot of amateur amateur dramatics in, in, in South Yorkshire, probably in all of Yorkshire. And I found myself doing joining these guys all much older well not quite a bit older than me, and doing two or three straight plays. Do you remember or, what you did? Yes, The wood carver was the first one I did, and exactly. it's all about somebody who carves uh, 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 um, Christ on the cross and has a sort of vision... And I was the sort of the, the atheist kind of, saying, come on, you can't do this. I was the <laughs> Someone young, can see the, the seeds
2: man. of a certain film. If I well, <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: maybe. Um, but I do remember there was another one called Exit for Seven, which is all about um, political prisoners going out to be shot. <laughs> fun thing to do. But well, anyway, that
2: makes you think of the death of Stalin.
3: There we were. Well, there you go. You're, 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 you've got a better narrative of my life than I have, I think. <laughs> But that I actually won an award for that at the Bradford Cooperative um, Institute Drama Festival. Mm. I, I won Best Perf, Gent. And Doreen Barraclough, who was the other prisoner with me, we have a slightly romantic sort of um, uh, connection, she won Best Perf, uh, Lady, I think it was. So there we are. So I was doing serious acting for about a year. Yeah.
2: And then you went to Brasenose College, Oxford, yes. to read.
3: Uh, Modern History.
2: Modern History. Um, That time has entered comedy mythology because of all the talent that was there at the same time. What was it like being at Oxford? You met Terry Jones there, didn't you?
3: Yes, yeah. First of all, I met a man called Robert Hewson, who I give major credit to, because Robert was from London. He's very metropolitan, uh, cultured in a way I coming from Sheffield, I wasn't, you know. I didn't know what a pizza was, you know. Um, and he sort of educated me in a way. And he here it was. We shared a sense of humour. We enjoyed Pete and Dad Peter Sellers, uh, the goons. And he said, look, let's put our... Why don't we write all this stuff down, let's create our own comedy half-hour and we can go and make money at uh, university parties, balls and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, never, I never countenanced that. I thought, well, we're just telling each other jokes. No, 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 we can make money out of it. And off he went and got me, got our first booking, first time I ever stood up in, in, in public and did comedy was at the Oxford University Psychological Society <laughs> Christmas Party. <laughs> that was <laughs> the gig he'd got. Which was, um, it seemed a total disaster because uh, we did our half hour in absolute silence. But at the end, someone came up, shook our hands warmly and said, that was very interesting. (laughs) Psychologist. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, so Robert was very important. And then I met Terry Jones. uh, But it it was doing cabaret with Robert Hewison. I was noticed by somebody who was the producer of the, going to be the producer of the Edinburgh Festival Review and the end Festival review in 1964 was was a turning point in my life really
2: how come what happened
3: well i now mean, i was, I was uh, chosen to be one of the cast of five which did my confidence a lot of good also the the review was very well received and we had to put on extra performances and we did late night shows and I realised that a lot of the audience weren't friends or mates from college. These were people from you know, all over the country, all over the world, who'd just come to see what you were doing. And I realised I was enjoying this. I was enjoying the act of writing. I was enjoying the act of playing the sketches. I loved hearing the audience uh, reaction. And at the very end of the run, uh, David Frost appeared from London on a sort of talent spotting trip and came and saw us all. And I suddenly, thought in the back of my mind, although he didn't say anything to me, just uh, uh, maybe there is a chance that, that I could do what I've always really wanted to do, which is to act, but also to write material which I could it perform. Was,
2: he had the Frost Report running by then. Yes, so he had the
3: Frost TV Report. Well, he didn't have it running then. This was oh, yeah. 64. The Frost Report was in 66.
2: That was the week that was?
3: But, yeah, that was the week that was, was around then. But that was satirical comedy, and what Terry and I were doing was sort of more more whimsical, surreal comedy.
2: Well, tell me about your partnership with Terry Jones, because you began working together as writers then, and it's a partnership that continued for many, many years. Did you have a sort of style? I mean, the fact that you were doing history, he was doing English, I've often thought you seemed to do something with historical and literary figures, didn't you?
3: Well, a lot of our comedy at that time was sort of self... Reflective on our education or, or or television, the world we were trying to get into—that was the world we also were sending up at the same time. Terry was very stimulating, and he could play lots of different characters. And there was a sort of truthfulness about whatever he did, which I liked. You know, this wasn't just somebody who said, "Look at me, I'm going to be a star." It was—he wanted to dig down into the characters, and he loved he loved the sort of diversity of what we wrote. And he was very interested in film. Now, I remember very early on, he did this lovely film at his parents' house in down in Claygate, which just he just used chairs from inside the house and stop action, you know, single oh. frame, and made this wonderful film about chairs sort of escaping the house and going out <laughs> into the garden and running <laughs> off and all that. And I just thought, to be able to do that, that's great. So Terry had the sort of technical side. He also, Terry had a very very strong sort of political side to him. I mean, stronger perhaps than my own.
2: Can you remember any of the early sketches you wrote together, you know, which perhaps reveals the way that your styles
3: meshed? Well, I can remember, I'm not sure how much they reveal. There was a sketch we did for for the Frost Report and it's about a very boring man at a party who'd um, come from Hendon and and he was talking to this man, what do you do? I'm a... I'm a lion tamer. I've been lion taming for most of my life. Made films about lions. Oh, I'm from Hendon. Yes. Where, where do you live? I live on a you know a, a little hut on an iceberg near. You know, oh, we live in uh, Pinner Lane, number twenty three, <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. So it's about sort of the um, the underdog talking to the overdog, and at the end, the overdog tells a wonderful tale to this guy about how. The daughter of the chieftain of this tribe came in, and spilled her robe and let her hair loose, and her long black hair. And then you know the trumpets blew, and uh, the whole place was whatever. And the tagline is, "Oh, really? Yes." And the man says, "Yes, yes. She was from Hendon." <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we were doing, sort of taking it different ways. Very interesting! And also about, I think, sorry, I think. It, it was about character, too. I've always in, I've felt the best comedy comes from character, from understanding people, not from... I can never remember jokes, not but not from telling jokes so much. As creating the characters, yes. which I suppose I was doing back in the in the milk room with the Duke of Edinburgh, I was probably giving him some sort of character.
2: Absolutely, your narrative coheres really well. Um, <laughs> so you and Terry worked together as writers on a number of TV programmes, including the Frost Report. Yes. What made the difference? I know you worked on um, other TV shows before Python, didn't you? The Complete and Utter History of Britain. Yes. Some episodes of which I remember when they were rediscovered. Um, I think yes. in the
3: nineties. Well, we we also did a series called Do Not Adjust Your Set, of course, which gave us twenty six. a half-hour programme for children, went out at 5.15. I'm Terry Jones, and I'm King Lear. I'm Eric Idle, and I'm Edmund. I'm Michael Palin, and I'm Cordelia. And I'm David Jason, and I am the King of France. The Earl of Gloucester, Edgar, son to the Earl of Gloucester, an old man, a fool, a herald, three servants, four knights attending the king, and I'm not in this bit. Our approach was that children know much more than we think they know. They're much more savvy. They don't want to be talked down to all the time. and So we had a sort of Python humour, which we were, I say, spent a lot of time on, and we were able to practise that. And I think my contribution was that I was quite, I was fairly versatile. I could do pretty much any kind of acting role but also I think I kind of understood about writing and and I think I did know how a joke worked.
2: Can you talk me through a sketch? Because I know from seeing some of the episodes, particularly of um, uh, Complete and Utter History of Britain, you know, they did play on historical settings. Yes. And there was one, was there one about Stonehenge?
3: Yes, there was one about Stonehenge. And and the conceit of Complete and Utter History was a bit like Horrible Histories Now. It was as if you had sort of the media and and cameras and broadcasting (laughs) throughout history. So how do you treat each little area? And we treated the Stonehenge with a sketch about an estate agent taking a young couple round and trying to sell them Stonehenge. You know, and and (laughs) the wife would say, oh, yeah. The, The husband was kind of, you know, Middle English gormless, it was the wife who asked all the questions. There are a lot of gaps. <laughs> and he says, doors, doors, uh, 43 doors. <laughs> and it went on like that. And then, of course, the husband uh, ends up pushing one of the doors and it falls down. <laughs> yeah, so that was the sort of thing that we were doing. Well... As I say, it's ideal for a young couple like yourselves with 30 or 40 children. It's got character, charm and a slab in the middle. And what about the gaps? Doors? That's another great advantage of a place like this. 46 doors. But isn't it a
1: bit drafty in winter?
3: Not if you keep running about, dear, not if you keep running about. I mean, feel that wall. Go on, feel it. That's Welsh quality for you, that is. A mountainside in your own home.
1: (coughs) (laughs) what you've done
3: not to
1: worry <clears throat> I am sorry mister
2: I
3: am... not to worry you just found the emergency exit
2: oh. <laughs> you're right in that it's not about a single gag it's sort of a situation and a set of characters uh, and the uh, humour develops out of where you take them
3: absolutely I think you've got to get the character, you've got to have a certain tension I mean the thing is that so sometimes with sketches it, it takes a while before the humour really kicks in you've just got to have the tension and all that And we did, I remember for Do Not Just Your Set, we did a wonderful sketch, which David Jason is hanging by his fingertips off a cliff. And these people come along and he says, ''Help, help!'' And they say, well, aren't you uh, the that guy from the television? He says, yeah, yes, I do do a show. We like your show. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. No, we like it. Well, actually, my wife doesn't like it as much as I do either. I love it. Yes, can you please? I'm just, I'm just one hand. And it builds up and builds up. And suddenly, he's actually saying, please, I'm going to fall. Oh, that's yeah, that's the, that's the voice you use, isn't it? In your sketches. <laughs> so you've got to sort of trap an audience and get, get them involved. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you.
2: How you came to be in this amazing partnership became Monty Python because mm-hmm. there were six of you, weren't there?
3: Yes, it's, it's odd because I can't think quite why it happened. I know the mechanics of what happened. It was after we'd done a complete another History of Britain. John Cleese rang up. I knew John from the Frost Report, and he said, "Oh, I've just been watching your series." Complete Nut History of Britain, and I was quite chuffed. I said, thank you. He said, yes, you won't be doing any more of those, will you? <laughs> Very Ecclesian. <laughs> but he, like, he said, I like your imagination, I like, I like the way you write, I like the way you perform. Um, I think Eric's good and all that sort of stuff And Do Not just Your Set. Why don't we get together and let's do a television series um all together using, you know, your talent the talents that um, Graham and myself, Graham and John Cleese had for writing sketches. Terry Gilliam, the animator, had worked on Do Not Just himself. And
2: we should say there are these sort of divisions within it because you know you and Terry were obviously already a writing partnership. Graham Chapman and John Cleese to some extent were. Yep. Terry Gilliam did his own thing with those amazing animations. Mm. And I did interview Eric Idle recently who who did say, you know, he felt slightly like, not out of it necessarily in a negative way, but he wasn't in a partnership the way no, that no, the rest that, of you were.
3: That, that's true. The partnerships, I think, were very important. It just gives you a little more confidence. It gives you the chance to sort of test out material. And when the material doesn't go very well, if there's two of you to sort of you know, support each other... Um, and. Uh, well, you, you know, it well, was, yes, there were different groups, but the great thing about Python was somehow there was a unity, there was a harmony in the humour and what we wanted to do. We didn't really spend much time having to explain to each other why something was funny or wasn't funny. We we wrote material, usually in our sort of separate groups, and then our, we'd read it. I read my stuff and John read stuff that him and Graham wrote. And, I mean it either worked or it didn't work I mean there would be there would be moments when someone would say can we take that away and work on it because I think we can it's a very f- funny idea but I think we'd go this way or that way but the actual assumption was that we knew how to make people laugh and we knew basically how how humour worked and how it should be played and Terry Gilliam was very very important because he was sort of cementing all this together with his you know, amazingly sort of surreal yes. Work. I mean, it's just absolutely perfect. But why the six of us, all from slightly different backgrounds, should sort of have gelled together, uh, I don't know, and it's very rare. I I know very few comedy shows written by six and performed by six people which have lasted. Can we talk through um,
2: one or two of the ideas that you developed together on Ponty Python's Flying Circus? The Spanish Inquisition sketch is one of your most loved, and that is one that you
3: worked on directly. Can you
2: talk me through how that became...
3: Well, yes, it was, uh, I did a lot of late night writing, I remember that, and I was getting a bit bogged down with a sketch, uh, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was a, a woman being shown photographs by someone who was very boring and said, this is me at the front of the house, there's me at the back of the house, you can see the front of the house just on the corner there, and she would just tear them up and throw them away. And the woman was played by Carol Cleveland and it wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, what do we do? So I brought in a Graham Chapman character who says, uh, you know, I want to say (laughs) something's gone askew on Treadle or something like that, abroad Yorkshire. And she says, what? Someone's gone askew on treadle. Oh, we carried on with this a bit. I thought, Where, where's this going to go? And she said, I'm sorry, could you say you say I'd just been told to come in and say something's gone askew on the treadle. I didn't expect a Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and I thought, ah, yes, that's the next move, bring the Spanish Inquisition in. <laughs> and that was it, really. I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! And they're brought in in a huge rush uh, and they're obviously not prepared. <laughs> they don't know their lines, they haven't got their costume on properly and all that sort of thing. And and that's where it began to take off because I felt this, the group of people in the Spanish English was a funny little group yeah. and they would look good and they were all in this outfit and they were all fairly hopeless.
2: <laughs> and then the riffing that continues too. Yes. I mean, I still can't think of a comfy chair without thinking of that...
3: Sketch. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the sort of. The torches that they offer. There was a good. I mean, I think, again, there's certain moments in humour which define how humour should be played. For instance, the comfy chair. Someone says, put her in the comfy chair. It's put her in. And there's a terrific sting. Da, 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 so you've got to build it up. The comfy chair. Do you confess? I don't understand what I'm accused of. <laughs> <laughs> then we shall make you understand. Cardinal Fang. <laughs> Fetch the comfy chair. There's another sketch which I think is all just in- interesting about why things, why things are funny. It's, it's called the, um, the fish slapping dance, yes. which John Cleese and myself do. When the music starts, I hit him with little pilchards on his cheeks and all that, and then I bow. And then John basically hits me with a very large fish and knocks me into the lock, into the water. Yes. But John did this wonderful thing that really, I think, made it work so well. He brought the fish out. We're all in army uniform, pith helmets. And he just measures it very well. Like, he's, you know, it's really this is a very important, you know, geometrical thing. You've got to get the physics of this right. So then he hits me. But that moment, I think, is what makes it very, very funny.
2: So interesting to hear you talk me through them. I do love the way that you all seem to enjoy dragging up. There's something about the way you play different women which mm. I find fascinating did you enjoy it as much and what is it about drag and British male comedy
3: actors that
2: work so well <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly the, the gang well, look, motorcycle look, grannies things like that. Yeah
3: well first of all we like dressing up whatever it is whether it's Spanish Inquisition or Roman Centurion so dressing up in women's clothing is just yet another side to it. It doesn't I don't know if it necessarily shows that that's the feminist side of our nature because most of the women we play tend to be rather sort of tough, the hell's grannies yes. um, or whatever. But, yeah, I, uh, I really quite enjoyed that. All the pythons, me least of all, I think, could play women very, very well. Terry Jones was a wonderful Particularly woman. Particularly Terry. Terry You're played amazing. his mother, you see. Terry was oh. his mother. And it was wonderful. He had to climb over walls <laughs> and all that. I just, there was just something about his his portrayal. Of the um, of the character, you know, the, I can't remember the man who comes in and says, Oh, dee, 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 how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm fine. What, what have you been doing? Well, I've been at the ministry. I'm the Minister of, uh, of Aviation. Oh, Yes, so you are. Oh, he's a good boy. Oh, he's a good boy. <laughs> and Terry managed to do that brilliantly. It was real love, but <laughs> expressed in the wrong way at the wrong moment. Yeah. Well, the um, flip side
2: of talking yeah. about the women that you played is you'll know that. There's a fair amount of what now seems quite sexist humour in Monty Python, you know, rape jokes, dodgy jokes about women's bodies, Mm. which are, I think, uncomfortable viewing for many people who still love a lot of other things about Monty Python. Is it uncomfortable for you looking back at those now?
3: (laughs) I said he getting away from that. I don't look back on them a lot, but I'm I'm aware of it. And I think it was just the the way things were at the time, I'm afraid, you know, the the way things were talked about. And generally speaking, if something makes you laugh, and, and most you know, and that's what we're doing with Python, I think that takes a, away a bit of the edge. But I mean, it's it's uh, it's undoubtedly sort of, I suppose you could say it's uncomfortable now, but that's the way people were then, mm-hmm. that's the way people talked, or that's the way attitudes were. I don't want to get in a position of defending myself because I think you're defending yourself against something which is now, looking back then.
2: Yeah, but I think a lot of people would say if you have to understand the context, and when you do, it may not mean that you're entirely comfortable, but it's not the same as someone making a joke like that now with all that we appreciate about...
3: Yes, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think jokes are all about current attitudes. That's what Python was about. That's what that was... The 1948 show was about... Spike Milligan was all about that. However surreal they are, they're about, they're about current attitudes, yeah. and probably things you wouldn't say now, um, and, and rightly so.
2: I'm really interested in how quickly you were doing kind of straight drama acting alongside the, the continuing comedy you wanted to make, things like Ripping Yarns, with Terry Jones as well. I'm really struck by how good you are in, in very dark roles, and that mixture of comedy and darkness... It's noticeable in much of your work as an actor. I was thinking the torturer that you play in Brazil, who's also a loving dad, Mm. who's recognised to be a lovable Michael Palin kind of figure and yet is this horrific torturer. And there's the sketch with Terry Jones, which is a Monty Python sketch. I saw it on your live tour a few years ago, where you're the kind of Protestant dour husband and she's wistfully thinking about the Catholics next Mm. door and all the sex they're having. I found it actually very moving. You haven't had formal training as an actor, so this is all instinct.
3: Yeah, I like sort of conveying a character who surprises an audience and moves an audience. And very early on at the 1964 Edinburgh Festival, there was a sketch in which I come on stage as a sort of old-fashioned entertainer with a very bad song and a very bad line in patter. And there's a big tea chest with a ribbon on one corner. Anyway, he does his thing and And then he says, I'm sorry to the audience. You've got to take the audience absolutely into it. You've got to love them. I love you all. Thank you. But I've got this box and it's got a label on it. He looks at the label and it says, Loving you in the past as we will in the future. Yours, the audience. And he's just terribly moved by this, you know. No one's ever said this to him before, you know. I never thought I was any good. <laughs> but anyway, he starts to sing, get all the audience to sing one of his dreadful hits. And after the second line, the, the box just explodes. Probably something you couldn't do now. And he just looks at the audience and he picks up his music stand and he just turns and goes off. And I love that moment because wow. he really took the audience around the other way. And, at the end, you know, they were not they hadn't written the thing, but they were, by involving them in it, As a character, but by by giving all your sort of emotion to the audience, you suddenly find yourself very vulnerable. I I love that change. Yeah, it is a great one. (laughs) Let's
2: talk about your travel documentaries and books, because they've had a huge impact around the world. You were a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society for many years. It sounds like from your earliest years, you had this yearning to be an explorer, and you finally were able to unleash it.
3: Yes, I did. I wanted to be an explorer. Um, And I explored you know, by proxy through magazines and and, uh, books, I knew that I was brought up. In Sheffield, there was very little chance of me ever exploring the world, probably even going abroad. People didn't then. It was quite exotic to travel abroad. In the same way, at this time, I felt, well, I'm never going to be a scriptwriter and do jokes like some of my heroes. But it was there from very early on and kind of informed a lot of what... I did later. I mean, Terry, Terry, was, Terry was quite interested in places and all that. And, for instance, when the Monty Python and the Holy Grail was being... We just had to decide where to shoot it. We could have been a studio in London, which John and Graham, I think, would have preferred. And Terry and I said, well, let's go somewhere wonderful that looks great. Scotland, you know, the fantastic scenery there, the mountain scenery, and it'll all be free and all that. So there were little moments like that where my love of places and going to places, and just sheer curiosity about the world. I couldn't believe how you could stay in one place without wanting to see what was over the next hill or around the next corner. And, and yet, you know, for a long time, I didn't really, I didn't really travel in a, any particularly kind of adventurous way until, until I was 45 and the BBC came and said, what do you do around the world in 80 days? And then I just got the dream job for someone who likes geography and travelling and people particularly.
2: Yes. Well, viewers really bonded with you on these travels and I, I wonder what you think was the secret of why you and your travels worked so successfully.
3: Well, part of the secret was I had a really good crew. I mean, I, 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 always forgotten in all this that there's a cameraman providing these images without which them you know, the series wouldn't, wouldn't exist. And yet you ever try and tell an interviewer or something like that the name of the cameraman, they're not really interested in that. So that's important. I mean, it's a simple thing. So I are a very good team, so I knew we were getting good pictures and we were seeing where, where I was going. The rest was just to be as open as possible.
2: Because there's a voice, you know, you're being yourself and I wonder how you found that change from playing all these characters, being a well, comedy actor to I I,
3: I found it in quite a roundabout way because when we set off doing Around the World in 80 Days, I, all I'd seen was in the small print, Michael goes around the world. I thought, wow, wow fantastic. Take my spotter's guide to countries, But uh, I didn't know actually how I was going to play the character on that first day. We never really discussed it. Was I going to be um, an actor playing a sort of Phileas Fogg role? Was I supposed to be the bumbling Englishman abroad? Was I supposed to be something more, which was a sort of political reporter able to interview uh, members of the government in various countries and all that? And, And it was the first two episodes. I really wasn't sure how to do it, and it's slightly awkward. The third episode, everything went wrong. We ended up on a Dow going from Dubai to Mumbai. It wasn't the Dow that they'd all expected it to be and had booked. It was a completely odd collection of people with 18 Gujarati fishermen, only one of whom spoke a bit of English. So you had to get on with people, and suddenly that was it. I just had to be myself, talking to them. By the end, I thought, this is it, just be me. And if things go wrong, or things go right, just be, absolutely be yourself. So a new pattern of life begins, up at first light and a visit to the loo. The plumbing is basic, they favor the hole-in-the-barrel system, but using it is nowhere near as alarming as getting to it. The approach is scorchingly hot by day and suicidal at night. But once installed, one enjoys direct contact with nature. This is rather a shock and causes my bowels to lock solid for three days.
2: What were your most sort of treasured memories of either that trip or others? Because you ate snake on that trip, didn't you?
3: I did eat snake. Yes, not a particularly treasured memory. (laughs) No, maybe that's not treasured. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, being on the Dow was the strongest memory of all the journeys I've ever done because, as I said, there was 18. Gujarati sailors um, probably all their earnings together would be in a, a minute fraction of what one of the BBC crew were earning with different backgrounds and yet we absolutely joined those seven days we needed them more than they needed us you know they were getting us through this difficult waterway and all that very very slowly that was an absolutely key thing to me because I felt for a start I wasn't frightened of travel which I, I think I was when I was young I was frightened because you didn't hear much about people travelling, certainly young people. Um, it was expensive. You had to learn a foreign language. I would be laughed at if I didn't get the language right. So suddenly find at the age of 45 that you could bond with a group of uh, fishermen from, um, from northwest India uh, and laugh and, and you know, share so how,
2: things. How were you communicating
3: then? Well... They knew a little bit of English, but it was mainly through preparation of food, for instance. You just Mm -hmm. see them, what's in there? What's that? You know, that red stuff. Mm -hmm. And They'd tell you you the local word for it, but it was the preparation of food. It was looking at, I had a blow-up globe, so I showed them my blow-up globe, and I said, this is where I started, and this is where I'm going. Catching fish, uh, the engine going wrong, you know, and, and trying to help them find an extra rubber band to keep the engine together and all that it was kind of we all we were all sharing yeah. and need we all needed each other really in that experience
2: It's no secret that fame and success can change people for the worse, and you are famous for being unchanged and modest despite your celebrity. You're in a long marriage, you're living in the same street. Do you never get tempted to move to Hollywood or behave very badly? Um, Would you like to confess (laughs) anything we didn't know? I've been
3: tempted to behave very badly. I have behaved fairly badly. Have you? Well, I mean, you know, uh, yes, or long drunken evenings or things like that. That's it. Nothing. No, I, I mean, I don't. I I hope I haven't let down the people who are my friends. I've had a very, you know, you know my relationship my wife lasted now 15 or oh, 55 years, more than that. We first met on holiday and I was only 15. You know, and, and it's great. There's just something about that relationship. In the same way that my dear friend Terry, there was something about our relationship there which you couldn't absolutely pin down and define. but You just knew it was the right thing. You knew this was always going to happen. This was going to continue. There's never going to be a, m- a moment when you would fall out and you not just talk knew. to each other. I sort of knew, yes. Wow. So I'm kind of looking for that in all sorts of things. In books I read. You know, when I, I always get very worried about the books I choose to read. I've got to get on with it in more than just a sort of, oh, that's a nice tale. Blah, blah, blah. I've got to get in there. I've got to get something more from it. <laughs> and then I'm happy. <laughs> so I'm looking for something all the time, I suppose, that I can empathise with.
2: I think it's fair to say there are some differences in how you, as opposed to some of your fellow Pythons, have been using their voice in more recent years. Mm. Eric Idle is a big campaigner for science and rationalism. He speaks up against Donald Trump. John Cleese has said some very, I think, provocative things, notably recently that London isn't really an English city anymore because of its ethnic diversity, which I know has caused a bit of a scandal. What do you make of the way that you've all chosen in later years to, to speak?
3: I think that you have to remember your own voice and what you can say and, and, and what you want to say and not try and be like everybody else, you know? I'm not on Twitter. I don't, you know, John and Eric tweet a lot. I'm, I don't know how they have time for that, you know? I have my friends and it's difficult enough to spend time... With, with the people I really like or people I sorry, people I know yeah. and can touch rather than some, uh, an Strangers. audience of follow, followers out there, however much it is. so, so we, you, you've just got to you've got to be yourself, I think. Um, do you ever talk and, to each other?
2: I mean, do you ever say to John, you might not want to? say that stuff or I don't know
3: Yes and we do talk um, but I think we all accept this is what we all are now Earlier it was much more difficult Python we we were quite a strong unit in terms of sort of um, our political activities, political beliefs I remember you know sort of supporting Gay News at their trial Um, and uh, you know I remember before that being in uh, an Oxford Stage production called Hang Down Your Head and Die, which was specifically against capital punishment. Very dramatic and very good piece, you know. But I think as you get older, you you kind of. Um, I, I personally find that I want to be sure of what I'm saying. Uh, I want to be sure that I can back up what I'm saying. I'm not a great. Uh, you know, I'm not a great arguer actually. I'm not a great debater. I I'm a, can be rolled over in debate. What I am good at is I'm quite sort of instinctive. I kind of know about people, and I can see very clever people saying things which are not really what they feel. They're just scoring points. Uh, And I've never liked that. I've always felt, well, that makes you slightly hypocritical. And, you know, I can't warm to someone who's Completely hypocritical.
2: And right now, when you know Britain is so divided and there's so much hostile rhetoric in, in so much of public mm. life, whether it's politics or even the way people seem to talk about each other, you seem to be one of the few figures who uh, you represent something really positive about Britishness. And I, I don't know whether you feel you want to keep your head out of it or whether some sometimes I wonder whether you could and should almost intervene in some way to heal the nation.
3: Sorry, this is me presenting you with the challenge. Do you now, know what I mean? I, I think... Uh, to calm people I, I down. I think healing the nation is, is a very dramatic way of putting it. I think there are lots of people in this country, I think the majority in, th- in this country are people of good heart, of talent, ability, who, you know, are not hostile and not argumentative. And what you've just got to do, what I feel I have to do, is keep in touch but whatever way possible, even if it's just writing a book about a ship that sailed in 1839. It's a little bit about, it's about this country, that ship, that voyage. It's about its success and it's about its overweening pride in the end of the journey when they go to the Northwest Passage. And, you know, I've been around talking about this and I don't feel that's sort of avoiding any issues. I think it's actually talking about a kind of, of Britishness or saying, look, look, there, there are many things that have happened in the past and going to happen in the future you know what's happening at the moment is not going to be the end of this country in fact i i i feel very strongly it's quite the opposite that i think in order to get rid of the mess people have got to go you've got to go through the mess and we are you know in deep shit at the moment do
2: you mean in the sense we have to leave even if it's with a no deal
3: no no i wasn't thinking that no i was thinking of the people who run our lives and uh, and you know have, have sort of Um, the the views that people have about what we should do about Brexit or not Brexit. Um, I think there are some some very unpleasant things going on at the moment. There are some very hypocritical people around the best people and not doing the best work, you know. So, but I I don't feel that's the end of the world. I think we tend to think of our moment in history as being, that's it, this is the moment. History is vast, it's going to go on and all that. I'm hopeful for my children and my grandchildren you know because I think there are good things about this country and I just want to make sure I do the best I can and other people should do the best they can rather than shout at each other the the environmental situation I think is worries me worries me far more because I just don't see how we sort that out and again seem absolutely to hell in a handcart
2: do you feel a bit guilty because of all the plane travel you've done (laughs) <laughs> Some people do now.
3: Yes. Well, hang on, hang on. I mean, I feel I don't. That it's not a major motive. My major motive is what happens in China, what happens in India, when all these people want to get the kind of life that we have had, you know. But if I fly here or there, it's fairly immaterial. Although I would consider cutting down my journeys. But it's it. You know, the the, the biggest issues are happening in countries where there are millions of people. And also, you know, it, it's, it's. I do feel, if I, as a geographer, that tipping point has been reached. Uh, global warming is now going to increase. It's going to increase very fast. That means, you know, that the sort of the 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 white ice will disappear and there'll be less reflected um, uh, less reflection there are there are fires burning now because of climate change which are wiping out huge areas of forest which of course trap carbon so, so that, what the, would
2: you say to people listening say yes I know this I worry about it but realistically what can I do as an individual
3: well I would I think you've got to aim at the top uh, uh, and I think that's very good that's it's Greta Thunberg I think what yeah, she's doing and um, and David Attenborough, they're going to speak at the, to the United Nations and all that. Those are the people you've got to shame. Lobby governments, lobby. Well, yes, are. and you've got to stop you know, this Brazilian Bolsonaro from giving permission for people to, to tear down um, forests in order to provide land for cows and sheep and all that sort of thing, which just increased carbon. It just seems so blinkingly obvious. Yeah. So more power to the Attenboroughs and the Thunbergs of this world.
2: Michael Palin, thank you so much. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice with me, Samira Ahmed. The producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
0: Hello again, it's Farah Jasat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and art charge included. Download the Out
1: app today. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute.